Chag Sameach, happy Passover to everyone. Uh, in this special Passover episode, which we recorded before Passover, we wanted to talk about, Passover is about becoming Jewish, about becoming a Jewish nation and getting a Jewish identity. So we wanted to deal with uh, ethical and value issues in becoming a Jewish people. So we invited Professor Benjamin Ishalom. I think you'll find it a very riveting discussion of how Jewish values make us uh, a Jewish state. Um, it starts a little bit abstract and philosophical at the beginning, and then it becomes, uh, as we begin to discuss real-life military issues, I think you'll find it very riveting, and I would say very important. Uh, this is an episode to listen to and to share. So enjoy, and Chag Sameach. This is JU Israel Teacher's Lounge, where we reach out to current Gap Year students, alumni, and any interested listeners, keeping you connected to what's happening in Israel and giving you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, senior JU Israel educator Michael Unterberg, and today joined as always by co-host and director of JU Israel, Alan Goldman. How are you, Alan? Doing well, Mike. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, hi, Professor Benjamin E. Shalom. How are you? Thank you. How are you? Good. Thank God. And I will down to the annoying part of the episode where I read a little of your CV so people know who you are. Uh, Prof- Professor Ishalom is founder and president of Beit Morasha, one of the leading proponents of Jewish inclusivity and moderation in the world today. He is the founding chairman of the Joint Conversion Institute and of the Israel Institute for Conversion Policy and chairman of the Ministry of Education Committee for Jewish Heritage Education, recipient of the prestigious Avichai Prize for Leadership. In promoting Jewish unity, Professor Ishalom has served on the faculties of Hebrew University, Yeshiva University, and the Technion, and is currently on the faculties of Barilan University and Bering College. Professor Ishalom is married and the proud father of six sons, wow. which is, that's, that <laughs> could be a top podcast episode all in and of itself. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. You're welcome. Now, I know we can talk to you about any number of different subjects, whether more political or theological, but today we asked you to talk to us about military ethics. And I guess sometimes I find that for our students, the concept of military ethics is strange. In other words, here's a whole division of society based on combat and essentially the ability to defeat an enemy. And so the idea that there are ethics to that sometimes surprises our students. Can you, before we get into specifics, just in general, what what does that mean to have if if the if the goal is to defeat your enemy, then all is fair in love and war? No, I mean why 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 is there even a field called military ethics? Yes, you touch a very uh, essential uh, issue, a significant question, because there are indeed in the literacy of uh, philosophy or uh, ethics uh, positions that argue that uh, in the battlefield there is no rules and ethics at all, because your major goal is to defeat your enemy, and uh, you have to protect yourself and your soldiers and your subordinates, uh, and to uh, cause uh, the maximum damage you can to the, uh, to the enemy. Uh, this is one position. Uh, the other position is that uh, ethical uh, rules and norms uh, cover all aspects and dimensions of life, including the battlefield. Um, but we have to distinguish between the question uh, to what extent there are 
ethical rules or norms in the battlefield and to what extent can we punish if somebody uh, is making uh, any mistake or uh, violates it all violates the, the rules because of the complicated uh, uh, conditions and, and, and circumstances in the battlefield this uh, these are different questions but I would like to uh, to put uh, your question in a wider context because um, for Israel as a Jewish state uh, and I would say even for uh, uh, people in general as human beings, the question of morality is not just a normative question. It's a question of identity because we are defined as, as, uh, as human beings uh, by the extent of, uh, of having or, or behaving uh, in light of moral rules. Uh, to that extent, uh, we uh, implement or realize, actually, our human nature. Uh, as Jews and as a Jewish state, uh, it is valid even more because the whole idea, the whole foundation of having for the first time in history after 2,000 years a modern Jewish sovereign state, independent state, is not just a political uh, fact. Uh, the, the, the Jewish state is not just a, a political instrument to advance various uh, uh, goals or, or uh, causes. Um, the Jewish state is uh, the outcome of the collective effort of the Jewish people. It is the outcome of dreams of 2,000 years. It's, in effect, a realization of a, the set of values of Jewish heritage. Mm. Uh, because it is a collective creation of, right. of the nation. Therefore, uh, the state is not just a, a political instrument as uh, I would assume that uh, a liberal uh, radical uh, position would define it. Right. It is a cultural phenomenon. It is a spiritual phenomenon because it's, uh, uh, it is a creation which reflects our dreams and visions and values. And it is also a platform, a mean, to advance our vision, our values. By the way, we, Beit Morasha as an institution, as an organization, this is exactly our role and mission, right? To, uh, to uh, educate leaders and to train leaders based on value system. In because you're seeing the state as sort of an embodiment. If, if the nation is, you're personifying the nation and the state is one of the aspects of that individual, Kielu. Exactly, like that's the, exactly. So then the rules of a healthy personality have to apply to the nation and it has to be based on good values. Absolutely. There's no sense and no justification to have a Jewish state, an independent Jewish state, unless we try at least 
to realize uh, moral values and, and, and the set of values of, of Judaism at large, right? And we're, and we're doing it, and your, your point that you know, it's been thousands of years means that most of our, certainly rabbinic literature, hasn't really been addressing it. Because in the diaspora, the, cha- the ethical and moral value challenges are very different than being a people with power, especially to be a superpower in the 21st century in the Middle East. We have to be... I don't know if creative is the right word in figuring out what our value, how our, what our value, cha- how to solve our value challenges. We have well, precedent, we, but a lot of it is uncharted. You, we have to rejuvenate. Yeah. You're absolutely right. What we are doing now is that we are turning back, turning the Jewish people back to history. Pre-Yohanan ben Zakkai. Pre-Yohanan ben Zakkai, but in a modern era, in, in uh, modern conditions. And since uh, we have now independence and sovereignty, which uh, enables us uh, a tremendous amount of might, power, wealth, to the extent that we never had in the past, it put upon our shoulders a new kind of responsibility that we never had in the past. How do we run a, a modern state? How do we relate to minorities under our uh, uh, regime or govern? Uh, We were always the minority. Now we are a majority in our country. How do we relate to minorities? How do we run a national economy? Right? In light of what values? How do we uh, make our preferences? Well, when the Declaration of Independence says that the ethics of the state should be based on, uh, you know, uh, the prophets in the Bible, exactly. So on those economic issues and dealing with disadvantage and even perhaps dealing with minorities, I do think their statements are clearly applicable. But in military ethics, can you give some specific examples yes. of where you see in in I would be interested in the Bible, but even more so in rabbinic writing. How did those traditions give us insight into how to solve our problems for today? Uh, I will give you an example. Uh, but first, I would like to mention just very few classical sources from the Torah. When you have to, to fight and to engage you know, uh, an enemy... You have to call upon him first for peace, to try to reach peace, right? And only then, if he refuses, you can fight. Uh, This is one very, very ancient source. Uh, There is a Mishnah following these verses. Rambam, in his Hilchot Melachim, the laws of kings, again, uh, writes uh, in details how should we manage vis-a-vis uh, uh, our enemies in various cases. But I, I'll give you an, an example, very, very relevant to our current uh, uh, struggle. We have to face a, a terror uh, war which is uh, taking place among civilian uh, population, mm-hmm. uh, we have to uh, to respond to rockets and and, and missiles 
which uh, are uh, shot from from uh, civilian villages from Lebanon, from Gaza, wherever. Um, and the, the question: the, the modern world, the Western world, is dealing with the challenge of asymmetrical warfare, where the the ethical difficulties of fighting against such an enemy are right. they feel insurmountable sometimes. Right, right. And there is uh, an ethical category that it is uh, used very often in these discussions, in this discourse, uh, which argues that. Uh, uh, uninvolved people or um, civilians and, and are not uh, uh, combatants. Uh, combatants, innocent population, and so on and so forth. The innocence is the, the, uh, the critical uh, category in this discourse, the innocence of, of these people. Which is, but it is in the eye of the beholder. You'll have people argue there are no innocents in a population like that, which allows... <laughs> Uh, allows terrorists to function within. To a certain extent, you could argue that the Bush doctrine yeah. was that any society that allows terrorists to exist has to be treated as... But but there are cases uh, like what you are uh, describing now. But there are other cases as well. Uh, people, uh, let's say in Lebanon, for example, farmers in southern Lebanon who are themselves victims of the terrorists mm -hmm. because the terrorists come and occupy their their homes and force them to uh, to enable them to act from their homes, right? So there are innocent. There are people who are innocent. It's a fact. Well, they're innocent in terms. I'm I'm playing devil's advocate yeah. on what, what students will say to me yes. when, when when so they'll say, well, maybe maybe they're innocent in terms of action, but in but in their attention and their philosophy, they agree. They share the same agenda. Of, I understand, uh, yeah. but I would go further, furthermore, because what what I'm arguing is that maybe there are innocent people out there, mm -hmm. but this is not the only category which is relevant to this situation. Mm -hmm. The category or the question which is relevant to this situation is to what extent these innocent people endanger me mm -hmm. by sitting there. Mm -hmm. And being, you know, uh, 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 a human shield to right. to our enemies. Okay, the question is not their innocence, but the extent of dangers that is coming from their side. Right? right? They're being and weaponized they against me. Right now, how can I justify it ethically that I have to respond and sometimes maybe even to? to harm them, right? We have in our sources, in the Talmud, in Masechet Sanhedrin, the Tractate of Sanhedrin of the Babylonian Talmud, uh, a halachic uh, category of Rodef, the pursuer. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. a pursuer is a person who is running after a third person to murder him. And the halacha says that if you see it, you have to avoid the murder, right? Even by killing, if there is no other way to prevent do it, the murder, to prevent, to prevent the murder by killing the murderer, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So a pursuer is an evil person. This is a clear situation. 
but the Talmud brings a very surprising category of an innocent pursuer. What Baby. is the innocent pursuer? Right. The embryo. Right. Right? Who endangers the life of the mother. And the doctors have to decide which life to prefer. And the halakha says, the Gemara says, that, of course, there are conditions, and mm-hmm. I, I will not go into the details, right. but uh, the Gemara says that uh, since the embryo endangers the life of the mother, he has a din of rodef. He is considered to be a pursuer, although he is absolutely innocent, right? So what does it give me for our discussion, for our current discussion. The Gemara, the Talmud, of course, doesn't deal with the modern war of, of uh, you know, sub-conventional war. But it gives some ethical principles how to deal with these kind of complex situations. And if I am connected to my sources, mm-hmm. to my culture, to my uh, classical sources, I can draw a lot of ideas and, and, and means how to deal with modern uh, challenges. The rabbis were sensitive ethical thinkers, and if we listen to them, it'll help us right. create at least categories that help us reason out. I mean, people who, are, people who are scholars of Jewish sources, no matter whether they are rabbis, academic scholars, uh, judges, whoever, Knesset members, you know, parliament members, who are connected to our sources can be inspired by these sources and can connect our past, our values, our vision from the past to our presence. Okay, so then let me ask you, how much then should this Jewish state, which should rely on its past and its heritage, that's relevant to help it, make the value decisions that will lead us to the future. How much should we care about things like the Geneva Convention or 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 being, you know, well, being looked at by law. the International Court of Justice or or international law in general? How much do we as a Jewish state have to worry about those things in making our value yes, decisions? Yes. Well, as I said, uh, to be a Jewish state is a tremendous responsibility not just for the citizens of the state of Israel, not just for the Jewish community here and abroad. It is a a responsibility for humanity at large. Um, I believe that humanity uh, made significant progress in terms of its moral uh, um, worldview. And we have to, uh, to uh, have a, an open and fruitful dialogue with uh, the Geneva uh, um, principles, with all um, international uh, institutions and, and organizations. We are member. We are member. A member. The State of Israel is a member in the UN and other global organizations. And we have to... Uh, uh, behave as a, a responsible member, as a partner. And uh, therefore, we have to take in account uh, the opinions 
and the views of others, it arose also from the concept of Kiddush Hashem, right? But uh, this is... Sanctifying one, the name of God in prayer. I mean... Making Jews assemble to the world that... Right. Behaving in a way that other people uh, would appreciate it. Right? So we have to uh, play a very responsible role in the human society and uh, the uniqueness of uh, the state of Israel and especially in this regard, uh, the IDF, the challenges of uh, the combat experiences of Israeli soldiers is in a way the opportunity, a historic opportunity to deal with a Jewish and human values, not just in the laboratory of, you know, of Beit HaMidrash, of the yeshiva, of the academia, or... Uh, in these are the, not academic problems I anymore. Mean, these uh, challenges are on the ground. I mean, it's a different thing to discuss ethical issues in a hole under the, you know, air condition, Uh, in our, uh, you know, uh, comfortable seats uh, or sofas uh, and to practice ethical norms and values in the battlefield. Uh, Beit Morasha speaks to soldiers, right? Yeah, the Beit, program Beit Morasha right? is actually training um, a very large number of uh, IDF commanders along the years, uh, thousands of uh, Dozens of thousands of, of commanders annually. Right. So what do you tell them in these, you know, these issues? Like, what do, you, what do you say to them? I mean, they're the guys on the front line. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. Uh, first of all, we discuss their, uh, their experiences in the battlefield. Right. Uh, we enable them to, uh, to uh, express their opinions and feelings about what they did, what they should do, how do they uh, uh, act uh, in these complex situations uh, to evaluate it, to judge it, right? right. And to, take, uh, um, to make conclusions and to take uh, responsibility for their behavior. You're mentoring more than lecturing them. Right, right. But uh, all this discussion is based on text studies, of classical Jewish texts and Western uh, uh, texts, uh, we discuss content, values, ideas, principles, uh, and we transform values into action. This is the whole idea, right? right? So um, I'll give you an example again yeah. of uh, a case which took place in our, in our program. Um, a team of uh, commander unit of the paratroopers uh, got a, a, an information from the um, intelligence that there are some uh, terrorists in a certain Palestinian village, terrorists who uh, uh, are responsible for uh, various terror attacks on buses and, and restaurants. Um, and the commander got uh, an, an order to, uh, uh, to go there and to arrest them, okay? 
they uh, were hiding in, in a civilian home with a family, a woman and uh, children, and so on and so forth. So the team came to the house, surrounded the house, and the procedure of the commander in this kind of situation is to call them to give up, to give their weapons, and to be arrested. So he did it. We don't shoot first, although we know that they are the, the worth murderers, right? Mm -hmm. We don't shoot mm -hmm. because there are civilians there in this house, right? right? So he called them. The response was fire. And one of our soldiers uh, was killed and mm -hmm. a few uh, were wounded. In the whole mess that uh, took place there, the uh, terrorists managed to escape. Okay? And the civilians? The, the, the action failed. And the, the civilians, civilians uh, were okay. Were okay. okay? Yeah. A, about a year later, the same commander, <coughs> same commander, uh, with another team of another unit, but again, a commander unit, got an information that the same group of terrorists mm. is out there in a certain Palestinian village, again, in a civilian home. Oh. And he go there again. Now, I ask my students, I ask oh. the soldiers, yeah. what would you do now after you know the, uh, the way of behavior of this group? You know the dangers. Right. Right? Their MO. Yeah. Their modus operandi. So I, yeah. I hear all kinds of responses. I would shoot a missile, I would take a helicopter, right. I would use, you know, all kinds of... But there, there is a family there, right? right? So the commander, the same commander, repeated the same procedure again and called upon the terrorists to go out. Now, what happened now? The door was opened and a mother with a baby on her arm and three kids next to her went out of the door. So the commander stopped any, you know, uh, to, to prevent any uh, fire, shooting. Right. Using as human, sh human shields. Right. And behind her back, the tourist shot the, uh, our soldiers. Now, the, uh, the result was actually... Uh, was positive because now he used, the commander used uh, um, snipers and they managed to kill the terrorists without harming the civilians, right? right? And it was a successful action, okay? Finally. But the question is again and again, uh, some uh, mm -hmm. of our uh, soldiers uh, were wounded. Mm -hmm. right. They could be killed. Mm -hmm. Right. The dangers is still exist. Sure. How should we act? And the, the balance, the, the, the calculation of values, right? Well, you have of, two competing of, values. You have right. the protection of the civilians on the other side exactly. versus the protection of my own troops. Exactly. And when I hand my when my children put on a uniform and I send them to their commanders, their command I'm expecting their commanders to send them back to me absolutely. safe. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we yeah. consider protecting our soldiers and protecting our population 
as the highest ethical um, mm-hmm. commitment. Right. Right. This is right. absolutely right. But then that I'm also a father. Procedure. I'm also yeah. a father. I'm oh, also six a boys. six boys. I was, <laughs> yeah, you did it. Of, of six combat soldiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was a combat soldier by myself. I uh, fought in the um, Yom Kippur War in Egypt uh, in a tank. Wow. Uh, so, uh, and uh, I know what we are speaking about, right? So, but this, would you say that that commander's procedure elevated protecting his soldiers as the highest value if he... Yes, but not in... I, uh, uh, this is the very sensitive balance that every commander, and you have to understand what kind of responsibility does he have. It's not just to protect his soldiers, because we could destroy this house mm-hmm. in a minute and to kill all the people there. Right. It's a question of it, it's not a it's not a question. We have the power. But if we want to come back home and to be able to look at the mirror and to say, I was a righteous person, I was a righteous Jew, I act in light of Jewish values to protect life. First, of course, our life. But secondly, also all other lives, right? right? So the balance in complex situation is very, very complicated. And therefore, I repeat my previous statement that we have to act in light of, of values and, and moral norms, but in such complex situations, even if we failed in this, we cannot judge, we cannot bring the soldier or the mm. commander to the court. Not in all cases. There are cases in which there is very, it is very clear that he violated with no uh, uh, need the moral uh, uh, the moral. Uh, I know the hospitals have this problem that if, if doctors talk about their failures and mistakes, they feel they'll be sued for malpractice. So there are environments where they're like they create these judgment free afterwards to debrief to discuss right. where we're not going to it's not about punishing it's about learning and building exactly exactly uh, the, I mean, it's very similar in the military mm-hmm. i i want to uh um, to mention another aspect of of uh, the morality of of the idf of a jewish army in a jewish state and this is the story of uh, bringing uh our soldiers, Haria Baumel, Zichon back home after so many years, after decades, um, and, and endangering uh, the lives of, of uh, those soldiers or, or uh, um, Mossad people or others who were involved in this action to bring his body from Syria. Uh, after so many years, uh, this is the deepest expression of the uh, the value that we uh, give to human life, to our soldiers, the commitment to our children and to our families to bring soldiers back home. Unfortunately, we still have a lot of work to do. Because there are some other 
sons who are not uh, at home yet, but uh, not always uh, we can, and the government and the military or other uh, authorities in the state can tell in public what they are doing because a lot of these activities are behind the scenes, of course, naturally, and only after almost 30 years When you succeed to bring somebody, y- you understand mm-hmm. how long did they work and how much did they invest in order to, to bring him back home. I, I, don't, I don't know that our listeners and our students from outside of Israel understood how much of a powerful moment that was here in Israel. How, why, why, was it, why was it something that touched all Israelis so deeply? I'll tell you, uh, first of all... Um, Unlike in maybe in other countries, when there are uh, uh, casualties, uh, killings uh, of soldiers, um, the, the uh, average uh, person in the street uh, doesn't care actually. Uh, he's, he, he doesn't know the person personally. In Israel, there is a sense of family, in a way. We are not a small family. We are a family of uh, almost 8 million people here. And the larger Jewish community uh, abroad is, again, the... Another 6, 7 million? Right. Uh, I mean, we are, we are quite a significant uh, um, number of, of members in this family, but yet... Whenever a Jew or a soldier or a child or a daughter of a family is getting hurt, is killed, we all feel it. We all feel it. You could, uh, you could see it when the three uh, uh, youngsters uh, were kidnapped and murdered uh, a few years ago. Uh, this was... really a trauma of the entire country, of the entire country. And we went out to a, to a war against Gaza because of that, right? So uh, we really uh, feel responsible for each other because we have a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood. We have a sense of peoplehood. We have a sense of family. And therefore we feel sorry for every a soldier for every family, and the commander who has to decide in these complex situations always remembers that not only to his commanders he had to, you know, to, uh, to uh, report, but he has to come back to the family, to the parents of this single soldier, and to tell them, Why didn't their child came back? Mm. He has to explain. He has to justify it. He has to feel personally the pain as if he was his personal child. And this is what happens, actually. Mm-hmm. You can see that um, uh, families who lost their children... In various wars along the years uh, 
along the decades of of, uh, of the state of Israel, there is a special unit in the IDF, a special unit in the Ministry of Defense, which is in charge of maintaining the connection with the families, mm-hmm. going and visiting there, not just in the first, second, third year after the the case, right? But 50 years later, 70 years later, they continue to maintain the connections with the families. Over the shared and loss. All, and right. I would say even on, on the more informal level, not only on the state level, but the soldiers themselves who've served with them in their units. They go, uh, they, they go, visit, they, they support they, the they, family. They stay in contact. I met a commander yeah. in, who was a commander in Lebanon when the tragedy of the helicopters, which in, in one day lost... 73. 73. And he, I mean, that's, that's, we don't, thank God, we don't usually have a day where we lose so many soldiers. And he has, with a large group of that network, he's part of those. Right, right, right. Even though the number's so big. Right, I can tell you that, uh, you know, I, you know uh, about uh, Nachshon Waxman, the soldier who was killed and murdered by the Hamas. Yeah. Uh, He was a neighbor of me. Right, uh, vis a vis in Ramot, in, in Ramot yeah. and we prayed together in the same uh, shul, same synagogue. Uh, I'm very friendly with his parents and, and family. And, you know, every year in his yacht site, when we come to the cemetery, you see there always soldiers from his unit, not from his right. original mm-hmm. uh, uh, unit, because new soldiers, younger right. soldiers from the same unit of Golani, mm-hmm. right? right? They continue to come because they feel committed to maintain the contacts with the family and to uh, to honor right. uh, their, their friend whom they... They didn't know, actually, personally. Right. But they, were, they weren't even they were, born. They, were they weren't born. even born at this point. Right. It was that right. Uh, 90, right. 92, right. 92, 92, right. right, right. And you can see the winter soldiers there. It from... It was a failed attempt to rescue him, which yeah. is also such right. a difficult ethical question. Yeah. I just met... One of the commanders was killed. Few, in yeah. Three weeks ago, I met uh, Yuda Vaxman, the father of Nachshon. He's not well, right? He's not he, well right now. He's not well. But um, I met him uh, in Hadassah Hospital uh, and uh, the sister of Nir Poraz, uh, the commander of the mm-hmm. commander unit of Sayeret Matkal, right, um, uh, who came to rescue Nachshon and was killed himself in, in the action. So you see the solidarity, you see the, the, s- the strong sense of belonging and and it gives a lot of strength well we have to have you back because we have a yeah. lot more to explore <laughs> on this and other sure. issues but do you do you feel we were talking in another episode about yeah. is what unites us as as citizens of the state of Israel stronger than what divides us we <clears throat> live in an age where we focus on politics and what divides us and do you feel ultimately that we that the, that what binds us is stronger, and that are, are you optimistic for our future? Uh, I'm very optimistic. I'm very optimistic. Uh, even if you are speaking of the last election campaign, right, which was very ugly, ugly. <laughs> but I remember 
um, election campaigns which were even more mm-hmm. ugly. I remember uh, um, uh, divisions and, 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 and uh, struggles which were violent mm. in the past. We all remember the story of Altelena. Mm-hmm. We remember other uh, uh, stories. We remember the that's uh, Jews killing Jews. I mean, that's Jews killing Jews. We remember. We remember the assassination of Rabin. Mm-hmm. We remember uh, other cases. The uh, battles over German reparations became so right, really right, ugly. right. And now, uh, the major uh, campaign took place in the uh, social networks, mm-hmm. which is. Very ugly, but yet no violence, no uh, uh, um, uh, you know uh, intervening in in the democratic process mm-hmm. in a violent way and and you see as a matter of fact that the vast majority of the Israeli society voted for the center mm-hmm. The Likud and Kaholavan, I'm not speaking politic right. politics. Right. I'm speaking of the tendencies, right, in the Israeli society. We have a radical right wing which is relatively small. We have a radical left wing which is relatively small, and we have a large center. Which Over fifty percent of voters voted for the two central right, right, which is uh, an more. amazing phenomenon in terms of the sense of unity mm-hmm. of of sharing similar values, of sharing similar goals, actually. Mm-hmm. There is no significant difference between uh, uh, Bibi and Gantz in terms of how to solve the mm-hmm. I mean the conflict with the Palestinians or how to run the national economy it's nuances nuances mm-hmm. fine-tuning so, not uh... right right so therefore I'm arguing that the vast majority of the Israeli society is actually uh, united and 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 I'm very optimistic because I see changes in all segments of the Israeli society the Haredi community is is Uh, passing over significant transformations uh, the secular so to say uh, uh, population is becoming less secular more traditional more interested in Jewish values and sources and, and heritage, learning yeah. and heritage uh, the the um, uh, religious Zionists are also splitting into various uh, uh, sub foreign movements and there is no anymore uh, a central authority not in the Haredi community mm-hmm. not in the religious Zionist community there is no Merkaz Harav anymore as a central authority there is no Ponevish uh, anymore or Rav Shach or, or Rav Elyoshiv uh, right well, as there's a, a few cent- Ponevishes right <laughs> as a central as a central uh, authority and people f- uh, feel more free and To choose their ways and this is very promising it's a slow uh, a process but it is a proce- positive process and I think that the center is growing mm-hmm. 
Yeah. There you go. Okay. Oh, thank you so much. We'll have to have you back to mentor us more on these yes. uh, issues because very helpful. Sometimes, you know, when we talk about these issues, we wonder if we're just uh, – but you, you've given us context to help us make sense out of uh, the day-to-day news, which is what we're right. usually discussing. So thank you so much. We really thank appreciate you. the time. Thank you. And Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. Chag Kasher Sameach. Thanks, Alan. Thank you, Professor. And as always, thank you, Ben, for your excellent engineering. Uh, thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, this is the part where I remind you that we are the JU Israel Teachers Lounge podcast. And it's also the part where I ask you to subscribe, to rate and review us, and to share and recommend us in any way you can. Also, we'd love your feedback so we can respond to you on or off the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Thanks.